And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to Episode 9 of Manufacturing Matters. I'm your host, Cliff Waldman. I am the host of this new program on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I am taking my career as an economist, my 15 years of experience in manufacturing research, to bring this program to the world so there can be a broader and a deeper understanding of America's crucial manufacturing sector. We're going to look at the headlines. The headlines matter a great deal in terms of manufacturing and performance, and both economically and politically, there's a lot of them these days. But we're also going to go beneath the headlines, and we're going to explore the complex structural turbulent dynamics that are changing what manufacturing is, what it looks like, and indeed what it does. The key word here is new. new. We're going to be talking about new markets, new science, new technology, new economic thinking, and we're going to explain to our audience how each one of those is going to bring a new manufacturing story. Our guests are going to be the best in their fields. We are talking to top economists, prolific authors, top scientists, people who are involved with manufacturing either as executives or policymakers. Indeed, America's factory sector deserves no less. Today, I'm proud to say that we are dealing with a special episode. We are broadcasting live from Capitol Hill, the Capitol Hilton, the NAB Policy Conference 2019. And the secret to doing a show is often to be a good host, but really the lucky secret is to have terrific guests, and today is no exception. I want to introduce our panel. Each will speak for ten minute, eight to ten minutes. I will ask each one of them a question. We're going to open up the questions then to our considerable studio audience here, and we'll be off. I think this is going to be a longer podcast than I've done, and I think it's going to be a special one. My friend Ken Wojtek is here today. He is the team leader for manufacturing research and um, and program evaluation, as well as the chief economist at MEP for the National Institute of Standards and Technology. He has his, his resume is almost too long to read. He has previously held senior research positions at the Urban Institute, the Michigan Department of Commerce, the U.S. Department of Housing, and many others. He earned his B.A. in economics with honors from St. Edwards University and an M.A., from West Virginia University that is currently working on his doctorate in public policy and administration. Ken, thanks for joining the panel today. Susan Lunn is a partner in McKinsey and Company. She has a doctorate from Stanford University and a BA from Northwestern University. She is an expert on global labor markets, financial markets, and trade. Her latest research assesses how new technologies and shifts in demand are impacting global trade and value chains. And we will here get the benefit of some of that wonderful expertise today. She has an active tra travel schedule discussing research findings with CEOs and other ex executives at global Fortune 500 companies and is a frequent speaker at global conferences. We are very lucky to have you today, Susan. Thank you for joining us. 
Mark Killian, I've had the pleasure of being on a NABE webinar with him very recently. He's the director of U.S. industry at Oxford Economics, extensive experience in, and creative experience, really, in research and modeling for economics and finance. He's also skilled in presentation of insightful conclusions and strategies. He brings value to Oxford's clients by developing innovative metrics that accurately benchmark business performances and reliably anticipate market conditions for use in business strategy and public policy. He earned a BA in economics from Indiana University, an MA from Boston University, and maintains the chartered financial analyst designation from the CFA Institute. Mark, thanks for joining us. Can we have a hand for our very distinguished panel who joined us today? Manufacturing is undergoing tremendous change, and those changes are happening globally. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Ken and then Mark to speak first. They're going to tell us, their presentations are going to tell us about some of the building blocks of change. Global manufacturing is no longer about chasing low-cost low labor, if indeed it ever was. Now it's about innovation change. It's about knowledge intensification through supply chains. It's about realizing that the world is no longer made of countries, but really made, the world economy is really made of, of, of chains that are getting complex, they're getting interesting, they're getting worth more. So we're going to explore that in the manufacturing world today. Ken, if you would, I'm going to ask you to speak first. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Cliff, for inviting me. Um, one of the things I want to talk about, uh, since I'm in the leadoff position, and it reminds me of my baseball playing days, uh, is to kind of just kind of try and paint a picture of kind of manufacturing from my perspective. Um, I think it's important to understand that manufacturers throughout the U.S. are facing a new set of challenges, but also exciting growth opportunities. Uh, I think it's important to understand uh, manufacturers, manufacturing's role in providing well-paying jobs, both direct and indirect. And I think it's also important to understand how firms react to these challenges is critical not only to the companies themselves, but to our country, our communities, and our citizens. It's ultimately important to both our economic and national security. I want to highlight some trends both globally and in the U.S., and some of the challenges and opportunities uh, facing manufacturers, with a particular emphasis on small and mid-sized manufacturers. Uh, and the reason for that is I work for the Manufacturing Extension Partnership. And MEP, one of the things we do is we provide technical assistance to small and mid-sized manufacturers. So my perspective is kind of colored by that. I also want to focus on the issue of advanced manufacturing. Uh, which to me on, on some level is thrown around loosely. Uh, but really to me what it means, it's about the integration of new technologies and techniques to optimize the manufacturing process to create innovative and cost-effective products. The digitalization of manufacturing is changing how products are made, designed, fabricated, used, operated, and serviced after the sale. It's changing the operations, processes, and the, and, and the management of manufacturing supply chains. I think we can all agree that innovation is important. Uh, how we make that happen, particularly in firms, is the challenge. Uh, and I think ultimately when we think about innovation, it's really about productivity. 
Um, we're in a new period. Um, Cliff had mentioned, and I think it's important for everyone to kind of keep in mind, the emergence of global networks in both production and innovation. And it has important implications for a region's innovation capacity. Um, how that all plays out, to me, remains uncertain. But I want to emphasize the notion of networks. It's not necessarily about markets, it's about networks. And I think that's kind of a, a different kind of change. I think it's also important uh, that we focus on support policies for U.S. manufacturing firms. Uh, as Greg Tassie noted, investments in science and engineering capital and innovation infrastructure are necessary. Um, again, while we all agree that innovation is important, it's also important to understand the current landscape of U.S. manufacturing. Uh, and I have no charts because it's part of my 12-step program to kind of move away from PowerPoint slides. Uh, so, so just imagine I have slides. Um, I think the, you know, the first thing, at least when I look at manufacturing, is productivity is sluggish at best over the last couple of years. Some have suggested we're in a productivity recession. Profits in manufacturing grew at two-tenths at two tenths of a percent annual rate between 2007 to 2017 compared to an annual rate of 3.4% from 1998 to 2007. I think there's also many myths about manufacturing. Uh, in many ways, we're still carrying around in our heads old, old models and notions about manufacturing that are woefully out of date. Manufacturing is composed of different industries, with differing patterns of growth and decline. Regions uh, of the U.S. have different industry mixes and have different product life cycles. In addition, manufacturing is composed of small and large firms. In fact, 99% of all establishments in manufacturing have less than 500 employees. They account for about 75% of all manufacturing employment and they account for about two-thirds of all value added in manufacturing. The economic environment that companies compete in today is vastly different than that of 20 years ago, and the pressure for change is continuing and accelerating. These challenges come from several factors. First, globalization, technology, deregulation, shortened product life cycles, and new standards for quality and customer satisfaction. These changes can't be ignored, legislated away, or simply wishing we could turn back the clock. So here's some of my positive outlook on manufacturing. Since 2006, nearly 40,000 manufacturing establishments went away. That's about 11 every day, or one about every two hours. Employment in manufacturing fell by about 4.6 million jobs. 11 of the 19 manufacturing industries today are producing less than they did in 2000, and 18 of the 19 industries have fewer employees than they did in 2000. Um, in addition, we see, to me, I see sluggishness across several other measures. Um, we had the bounce back from the Great Recession, but employment, productivity, industrial production, new orders, capacity utilization, and real output have basically been flat for the last five to six years. I think that's kind of important to kind of keep in mind. Even among our most advanced manufacturing sectors, we see our global position weakening. 
if you look at this series, the advanced technology products, things like biotech, electronics, aerospace, advanced materials, weapons, uh, we've been running a trade deficit since 2002. We also, if you look at sort of the churn within manufacturing, we see a decline in business dynamism. Uh, churn in manufacturing is declining. Uh, there's also large gaps across small and large manufacturers. Not only does that manifest itself in terms of productivity and profitability, uh, but also if you just ask you know, large and small manufacturers, what are you doing, you see significant gaps. For instance, seven in 10 large manufacturers say they have significantly or fully achieved world-class manufacturing status, while less than half of smaller manufacturers have done that. In addition, eight in 10 large manufacturers have implemented an Internet of Things strategy compared to just over half of smaller manufacturers. Um, one of the neat things that we do at MEP is we um, as part of kind of reaching out to our clients is we survey about 8,500 to 9,000 clients annually. And one of the things we ask them about is what are the three things that are keeping you up at night? And one of the things when we look at the, the survey results coming back is the, the challenges for small manufacturers basically remain fairly consistent. Things like continuous improvement, growth and product development remain the top concerns among small manufacturers. Um, but we also see some significant spikes in the issue about employee recruitment and retention, technology needs, and supply chain issues. Um, another thing I'd like to talk about is a key driver of productivity is investment. Uh, we've seen a slowdown in new investment compared to uh, depreciation. The growth in our capital stock is slowing. Uh, another thing which startled me, uh, and I'm oftentimes startled by the most insignificant things, uh, is about, you know, if you look at the composition of investment, about 75 or 70 percent of new investment in 1979 was in traditional categories like plant, equipment, and structures. Let's move ahead to 2016. And the vast majority, nearly 50%, 57% of new investment is now in intellectual property. Uh, and I think that, to me, was quite startling, that shift in that composition of, of in new investment. In addition, I think it's important for manufacturers to come to terms with things like 3D printing or additive manufacturing, the Internet of Things, Industry 4.0 or 5.0, depending on your particular taste and what this means for manufacturing. Uh, not that uh, Susan paid me, uh, but McKinsey estimated that about 40 to 50 percent of the existing installed base of manufacturing equipment will need to be replaced to achieve digital readiness. That's about $115 billion of new investment annually over the ne next decade. Um, so I think that's kind of important to, to kind of keep in mind. We're talking about some significant uh, new investments. In addition, uh, the National Science Foundation, their BIRDIS survey, which unfortunately, the most recent one, uh, is in 2008, but it suggested about one in five manufacturers either introduced a new product or a new process innovation. Um, that's good, but to me, that feels low. 
in addition, R&D investment in manufacturing-related industry is low compared to uh, our peers in other countries. And just because I like surveys, I would like to urge that the National Science Foundation uh, continue to do the BIRDIS survey. Um, the final thing uh, that I'd like to talk about is the importance of manufacturing uh, practices to growing manufacturing. It's not just about innovation. Uh, there is no silver bullet. It's about a recipe, um, putting everything together within a firm. I think it's also important to kind of think about firm-level upgrading, which means developing the capabilities uh, and the organization and business models to participate in the global production and innovation networks. And with that, I'll turn it over to Mark. Thank you very much, Ken. Mark Killian, up next. So I admire Ken's ability to go without PowerPoint presentations. I have not grown enough as an individual to go down that road just yet. Um, but I uh, am uh, like Ken in that I'm very pleased to be here uh, speaking on this topic. I see many new faces, uh, many faces I know from the past. And uh, let's see if I can figure this out. The other right there. You want a pointer? How about this? There we go. Well, old school. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to take a look at the industries uh, and their role and contribution to technological process and illustrate some of the themes uh, that Ken spoke of and Susan will talk about. And uh, these are more or less uh, the takeaways. I'm going to look at uh, a metric called R&D intensity as a way to um, identify uh, which industries have more knowledge and information and allow for a ranking across industries and across countries. We're going to look a little bit about the footprint of the manufacturing uh, part of technology versus uh, services, and they are quite a bit different. Um, we're going to draw some conclusions, and one of them will be information leads to concentration. I only have two jokes in this presentation. That's one of them. Uh, but as uh, Ken said, uh, um, much of the growth in the information sector leads to a concentration towards larger firms as, as opposed to smaller firms and uh, concentration geographically as well. And we'll talk about that a bit. Um, and um, uh, as part of that, I'm going to make two distinctions, uh, the makers of technology versus the buyers of technology. And I'm going to make the contention that it's uh, business spending that is the main mechanism for diffusion of this technology. So to take that last point in particular, uh, how to measure uh, uh, R&D intensity, RDI, R&D intensity among industries. Well, I just took the OECD's methodology because I think it's a very good one and it's well documented. And it basically looks at those that are producing uh, knowledge by investing their own money in, in R&D, spending capital expenditures on R&D. And the other are those who buy R&D-infused products. So when they make operational expenditures, um, uh, for products, uh, we're looking at those whose purchases are dominated by those that have R&D uh, within them. And so these are the industries that are designated by uh, the OECD as having a large R&D intensity. And I've separated them into a couple of buckets. Of course, uh, there's the manufacturing versus the services sectors. And you'll notice there's a lot more categories within manufacturing than there are within services. And I've separated them into the high R&D intensity versus 
the medium R&D intensity. Now, the OECD also lists several that are lower R&D intensity, but I won't talk about those today. And uh, I will point out uh, that the manufacturing portion of this is much larger in size, so the numbers represent each of these industries' share in global GDP. And so the biggest one in manufacturing is motor vehicles and parts, no surprise there, but also chemicals, very large, uh, computers and electronics as well. But the single biggest one, of course, is on the services side, and that's the information sector. That's internet publishing, data processing, data hosting, uh, and, and related services. So altogether, they account, uh, all these industries together account for about 11%, a little over 11% of global GDP. And uh, now we can ask, where is that occurring? Where is the growth in these RDI industries occurring? This is a heat map. And it basically shows which industries have a greater concentration in these uh, RDI industries as compared to the world total. So that 11% that we just talked about, 11% of GDP, this map shows uh, which countries have greater than 11% or which ones have less and by what degree. And the higher ones are, are in red um, and the lower ones are, are in uh, blue. Now I have to apologize. Um, it, you'll look at this map of the world and you'll see a lot of countries that are missing. We don't have Central America, for example. We don't have several countries in Africa. Uh, just because the data does not exist or is not robust enough to make a conclusion. Um, and, but I, the reason I meant to mention that is to point out in Asia, next to China, there's a, uh, North Korea is missing. So South Korea is just below that. And it looks like an island, but it's not. It's South Korea. <laughs> and they're red, and Japan is red, and much of uh, Asia, uh, Southeast Asia is, is red as well. So those are the areas where RDI is most concentrated. Now let's look at the United States in particular and look at all of those industries. Now I followed the color coding scheme so that the green, uh, ones that are in green are the services sectors and the ones that are in blue are the manufacturing sectors. And you can see for the United States, you know, we are very intensive in software. We pretty much lead the world there and are very high as well in, our, in aerospace. Um, and then several others, weapons and manufacturing, shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Pharmaceuticals, we're on the number one, so we're pretty much at the global average. But surprisingly, just beneath the global average is uh, information, internet data uh, publishing, uh, information services. So even though that's a very vibrant sector in our economy, in, in the United States, we have lots of other developed sectors, the financial sector, distribution sector, and you don't really see that in, say, China or in Malaysia. And so that's one reason why that sector has a smaller share of GDP in the United States as compared uh, to others. So you can see that reflected um, in the, the heat maps globally. I've made one for the manufacturing sectors, that's on the left, and then one for the services sector, that's on the right. And you can see um, that it's quite a bit different. For manufacturing, Asia, Mexico, and parts of the European Union, sort of the middle swath of the European Union, are very well represented, as well as Southeast Asia, Thailand, Malaysia. But if you look on the right, it's a little bit different. Uh, you see North America, uh, Mexico's gone uh, from that picture. And within Europe, it's the uh, countries on the periphery, so Finland, uh, the UK. Now, Ireland is in both. The two countries that are highlighted in both is Ireland, because of the low tax rate, and China. And we heard Senator Warner talk about this, China's big push into information services and the Internet. And that is the single industry which causes the Chinese uh, 
services total to be so concentrated. They're not spending on R&D. They're not spending on software because there's not a lot of intellectual property production there. They're spending a lot of money on that one single sector. So uh, just that alone is causing uh, that result for China. So certainly a, uh, information leads to geographical concentration as well. <clears throat> so coming back to the United States, in this chart, I've, uh, uh, we've, uh, at Oxford Economics, we unveiled a new product last year, uh, which looks at very granular levels of industry, over 250 individual industries. And if you add them up, they comprise the entire GDP of the U.S. And this is the top 15 fastest growing industries from that list of 254. And it's a forecast. It's a forecast for this year. Uh, but the ranking is not that much different than uh, we saw last year. And again, I've colored the services sectors in green. So the top one, the fastest growing, is information, internet publishing, web search. And uh, if you go far enough down, you see software publishers as well. And then uh, almost on the bottom is, is the data processing. Now, I will say that the fast growth in these areas is causing a lot of uh, spending on the part of those industries, so they're uh, stimulating a lot in electronics. Um, you'll see uh, uh, within the blue categories, like the fourth and the bottom, is telecom equipment, for example. And just missing from this list, number 16 and 17, are other areas of electronics like semiconductors. So clearly the spending from these services sectors are causing demand for manufacturing. Um, as well, in the United States, we're having um, uh, strong output of oil and natural gas due to fracking, which itself is a tremendous technological development, just not listed in the OECD. It's the only reason I didn't, um, I didn't talk about it here. But fast growth of oil and gas is causing strong demand for related machinery. So this, uh, the third one down there is uh, mining and e equipment for use in mining uh, and oil and gas. Um, as well, uh, the plentiful supply of low-cost feedstock is stimulating the chemical sector. Yeah, shout out there for Kevin here. Uh, so you see several chemical sectors listed on here, industrial gases, synthetic dyes. I mean, they're, they're all over the place there. And then, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. So the last uh, chart I want to look at um, talks about the footprint, the impact of these industries on the overall economy. So what this shows is uh, a, a total output multiplier. It comes from the input-output analysis put out by our good friends at the BEA. A shout-out to the BEA, a wonderful organization. So uh, the black color shows the amount of economic activity induced by increasing this sector's output by a dollar. So if you get a dollar more of motor vehicles and parts, you're going to generate a lot of activity because they have to buy some rubber, they have to buy some steel, they have to buy some electronics to assemble the car. Um, and so the total multiplier for motor vehicles is uh, almost three. And that is the highest amongst the industries that are in uh, the input-output analysis. And you can see that a lot of the manufacturing sectors are at the bottom of this list where they have the higher portion of a total requirements output multiplier. Um, whereas the services, they have a smaller uh, footprint. They just do not cause as much economic activity on an operating expenditure basis as do the other industries. However, one thing I know is that if you give an industry a dollar more revenues, they're going to spend some of that on CapEx. And that ratio, investment to revenue, that's the capital intensity. And so again, I went to the BEA. This time, their fixed asset uh, data set. And 
uh, captured the capital intensity, ratio of gross output to CapEx. And you can see a lot of these industries, their influence is via the CapEx, not the OPEX, by the CapEx. And a lot of them are in the energy area, for example, pipelines and oil and gas extraction and utilities. They're not spending a lot on OPEX, they're spending a lot on CapEx. And that is where uh, the services sectors are also uh, producing their greatest uh, impact is um, uh, not necessarily through the OPEX multiplier, but through the CapEx multiplier. They have to buy electronics. They're buying a lot of R&D, a lot of intellectual property products for sure. And they are among the fastest growing, as we saw from the previous slide. So that is amongst the fastest growing areas of CapEx as well. Um, but uh, my contention is that um, it is the business spending by other industries uh, that captures uh, the benefit of new technology that these industries are, are producing. So we see what is the, the highest in the ranking. Do you know what is the lowest in the ranking? What industry has the lowest ranking in terms of its total output multiplier? Funeral parlors. <laughs> Death does not lead to information. Death does not <coughs> propagate knowledge. So thank you for indulging in that joke. And with that, uh, I'll turn it over. On that charming thought, we'll move to Susan. <laughs> I was not forced to go cold turkey. So um, I'm going to now take a step back and look at the global view and what's happening with global manufacturing. So this is a report uh, that we released a month or so ago. It reflects several years of looking at what we call global flows, but the different trade flows in goods and services and finance investment across countries. And in this work, we looked at 23 industry value chains. Value chain is, think of the supply chain. So it will reflect all the trade in intermediate parts and goods that finally gets created into a, a final product, and then how that final product is shipped to an end consumer somewhere in the world. So as we look over the last uh, 20 years of what's happened to global value chains, we see that the world really went through an inflection point somewhere around 10 years ago. So between the 1990s and the first half of the 2000s, you saw China enter the WTO. You saw developing countries um, start to participate in global manufacturing. And we had this explosion in ICT technologies that enabled companies to start to offshore production and disintegrate production. So move from vertical uh, manufacturing companies into outsourcing to specific suppliers. And you had this explosion in trade in goods um, because of all this. And this was the creation of these long, complex global networks of the goods and even services that are produced and consumed around the world. But sometime right around the time of the great uh, financial crisis and recession, things started to change. Uh, and that was obscured because, of course, the world fell into a steep recession. And then trade collapsed. It sort of bounced back a bit. But it seemed like we were waiting for growth to pick up and for things to, quote, go back to normal. And what's clear now, 10 years out, is that we are in a different world and we're entering a whole different uh, chapter of globalization. So there are five key trends. Here's first, the share of goods that are traded across borders is now declining. And this is a structural decline. This is not a cyclical decline. So this chart shows you 
the value of traded goods, intermediate and final goods, relative to gross output, and it grew sharply during this period of the globalization of supply chains. But since 2007, it's dropped quite significantly. And you see this in different industries, whether it's textiles, automotive, chemicals, uh, manufactured goods. Um, what's happening here? Is this a problem? Well, it's a problem if you're a shipping company, a port operator, or a logistics company, possibly. But for the rest of us economists, it's actually a sign of economic maturity in China and other developing countries. So let's look at China because it is such a major player in every single goods-producing value chain. So this is 10 years ago, 2007. China was exporting 55% of the computers and electronics that it produced, 37% of textiles and apparels, and so on down the line. 10 years later, you can see that what they're exporting has fallen dramatically. Uh, this is why, well, it's because Chinese consumers are now one of the biggest consumer consumption pools in the global economy. So Chinese companies are now selling to Chinese consumers. You see the same trend happening in India and other developing countries, although India is further behind in terms of its the size of its uh, consuming class, and other developing countries are very small. But what this means is that if you're a global manufacturer, it's not that you're shutting down your production in China, but what you're making in China is now being sold in China. So then the question becomes, where are you going to put your next factory? So overall, over the same uh, trade period, uh, over the same period, you'll, you'll note that China's trade uh, surplus, its current account surplus, has actually fallen from about 7.5% of GDP to 1.3% of GDP. That's a huge shift. And this is note, all of this is up through 2017 before the current U.S.-China trade tensions and tariffs. Second big trend we see in global value chains is just that services are becoming more important. So services trade has often been the, sport, the poor cousin of goods and manufacturing trade. Uh, but you can see that certain types of service trade, including telecom and IT services, business services, as well as intellectual property royalties and charges, are all growing two to three times as fast as goods trade. Now, I know that this is a manufacturing breakout, but services are increasingly an important part of manufacturing value chains as well. So even when you're producing a car or an airplane or, say, industrial machinery, the value of the R&D, the innovation, the software, as well as the distribution is going up. So this shows you a sample of different value chains from automotive down to basic uh, metals. And you can see that the foreign traded services as a component of that value chain has been growing. Now, in many of these value chains, it's growing at the expense of domestic services. And this is part of why you see this explosion in cross-border trade and services. But a lot of the work we've done suggests that although we call it manufacturing, a lot of what happens is actually a service in that industry. And so I think the line between manufacturing and services is actually blurring. Third big change, uh, global trade in goods is no longer really based on finding low wages. So 20 years ago, you did see a lot of offshoring of production. Uh, but today, when we look at total exports of goods, 
we see that only 18% went from a low-wage country to a high-wage country. And we're defining low-wage and high-wage here uh, by a factor of five. So low-wage country is a country that's got GDP per capita one-fifth the level of uh, the receiving country. So that would be, for instance, India to the United States. Now, wages have risen in a lot of what used to be developing countries. So, for instance, Poland or the Czech Republic to Germany no longer counts as labor cost arbitrage. But this is true even in the industries that are most labor-intensive. So consider um, the apparel, uh, textiles and apparel value chains. So um, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, over half of the trade in that value chain was from a low-wage country to a high-wage one. But today, that's down to 43%. Now, why is this happening? Well, this is because of automation. This is because robotics produce the goods no matter what industry you're in. And if robots are producing the goods, you don't care as much about finding low-wage labor, but you do care about the supply and cost of electricity, about the quality and cost of transportation networks, about having access to the... Um, talent that can actually work on the factory floor, which now requires a degree, usually in mechatronics. And so lots of other factors are important in determining where you're going to put that factory. Um, in classic case of textile um, manufacturing, you're starting to see uh, the automation and roboticization of those industries. So two examples, Nike and Adidas. So when you think about athletic shoes, these were the classic uh, types of goods that went to Indonesia and Vietnam and Bangladesh. A classic Nike has 37 different pieces of fabric that are sewn together and put onto a sole, but the Nike Flyknit now is knit in one piece. So in total, it has two pieces. It's then attached to the sole. This can all be done by a weaving machine and then a robot. And Nike set up its Flyknit production in Mexico. Uh, in part because it wants to be close to the U.S. market. So as soon as Kylie Jenner wears a pair of yellow sneakers and every teenage girl wants those yellow sneakers, it can get them to market and it's not sitting on a ship for 30 days coming from Asia. Um, Adidas has gone even further. They have uh, what they call their future craft shoes. Um, they started a factory in Germany, now built one in Atlanta. Um, they're aiming to produce a million pairs of athletic shoes. It uses 95% less labor than the traditional manufacturing process. It's three times faster to market. And again, it's similar to the Flynet, even, although even more upscale. And they're looking to roll this out. So even in the very traditional labor-intensive um, industries, the robots are coming. The fourth big change is uh, what's been mentioned. I'll go through this quickly. It's that all industries are becoming more knowledge intensive. So we measure the spending on intangible assets, which is R&D intensity uh, that Mark talked about and Ken talked about. And then we add in other types of intangible assets, so marketing spend on brands, on software, and on IP. And you can see in all sorts of value chains, uh, this, this stock of intangible assets relative to revenue has gone up quite considerably in the last 10 years. So no matter what industry you're in, it's really about your R&D, your engineering, your design, and coming up with a new product. Finally, even though we call it global trade, about three or four years ago, we saw a shift. 
between the share of global trade that's long haul versus within a region. And for many, many years, with the entry of China into the WTO and other developing countries, the share of trade across regions around the world uh, was exploding. But that has turned around. And now what we see is more growth coming trade within regions. So each of these bubbles shows you the share of trade that's within the region versus between the region and the rest of the world. And you can see the EU 28 is ahead, so almost two-thirds of trade is actually within countries within the EU 28, one-third with the rest of the world. Asia-Pacific was surprising when I first saw this data. So over half of trade in Asia is now within Asia. And that's surprising to me because they don't have a free trade agreement. They don't have a customs union like Europe does. And Asia itself has never really been a region. When you go there, you'll know. It's actually huge, sprawling, many countries. There's no sort of collective sense of identity. And yet the value chains created within the region have really grown. Uh, NAFTA is, is sort of third with 41%. So increasingly, why are companies moving to regional trade? Well, part of it is that speed to market. It's true in fashion, but it's true in all sorts of different goods. Um, The second factor is that companies want to integrate more with suppliers. So the creation of long global value chains was accompanied by this arm's length relationship with your supplier. But now we've seen all sorts of supply chain disruptions, whether it's problems with quality, whether it's uh, natural disasters. Uh, Now with climate change, activists are getting down on companies to green their supply chain. Digital technologies offer huge opportunities to uh, improve efficiency, but you can't do that if you have an arm's length relationship with a supplier who doesn't want to adopt your new technology platform to integrate the supply chain. So for all these reasons, companies are starting to think more about integrating at least with their tier one suppliers, and that's easier done when they're, if not within your country, then at least very close to your country as opposed to the other side of the world. What do all these uh, trends mean? Well, in a nutshell, uh, these are all good news for the U.S. and for Europe. It means that a lot of the factors that drove a lot of manufacturing production to low-wage countries no longer hold. So the things that matter are your service sector, your innovation, your talent pool, your infrastructure, your energy costs. Those are all areas that favor locating production here or in Europe. We already see companies starting to respond. So we did a survey last fall of over a 1,000 executives um, around the world from a variety of companies. 75% Uh, said they're already rethinking their production footprint and supply chain strategy. Half said they're already planning to change the geography of their locations, in part because of trade tensions, but in part because of the factors that I just outlined. And in fact, a quarter say they're investing more in domestic supply chains so they don't have to worry about uncertainties in the cost of cross-border trade altogether. For countries... Uh, For the manufacturing um, companies, I'll go through it very quickly, but all of these things are causing executives to rethink how to produce, where to produce, where to focus in the value chain. You have extremes like Apple that outsource all manufacturing activity together. They're just focused on the innovation and R&D upstream and then the downstream retailing and distribution and marketing. 
Um, but lots of companies are thinking this way. They're thinking, how can we get more value from services? A lot of automotive com companies will tell you the net profits on new vehicle sales are very low. Where the money really comes in is all the after-sale services. Um, developing country consumers, like those in China, are the future. Um, when you look at global GDP growth, uh, it's really being driven by the developing world. So although that means that a lot of what's produced in those regions is being consumed there, it's also an opportunity for companies in the U.S. and in Europe. So as of 2017, there were $4 trillion of goods exports from high-wage advanced economies to developing market consumers, and that's a market worth looking at. So all of these things together lead me to the conclusion that we may be entering a very positive new chapter. There are tailwinds that could lift U.S. manufacturing if we make the right choices and investments and stay competitive. Okay. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you very much to our panelists. Um, conference time is, is tight time, as everybody knows. So rather than we have a large audience, we're grateful to see that rather than trying to get uh, questions from the audience and, and do a few and, and leave everybody else out. I'm going to give everybody my email address. You have questions afterwards, send it. These are busy professionals, but I hope you, uh, gentlemen, Susan, I hope you don't mind if we, we uh, don't do that. So it is jcweco at aol.com. That's my personal and for either our studio audience or our podcast listeners, if you have questions about today, please send them to me. And again, these are busy professionals, but we'll do our best to get you a good answer. So I'm going to wrap up with a quick question for each one of them, and then, then we will thank them. Ken, your work in, with small manufacturers is intriguing to me because... I've noticed some interesting data in my career on, on small manufacturers. I had the opportunity to um, collect U.S. national data on automation investment behavior. And I noticed that while it was expected that larger companies invest more, that's always the case with any sort of physical investment, there was a huge amount of investment even in very small uh, manufacturers, less than $200 million in revenue. That, that's almost a tiny manufacturer. And here, here's my question. I'm wondering if you think all of this new automation technology isn't going to help with entrepreneurship in the manufacturing sector. It not it a leveler. All of a sudden you can have a three-person food distribution um, business that can scale more quickly. Do you think automation is going to be, we talk about it in big companies and its impact on employment, but do you think it's going to be in, uh, interesting as an inducement to entrepreneurship in manufacturing? The easy answer is yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> How's that? Mm. Mark, let me, let me ask you a question. You talked about R&D intensity, and indeed I've, I've looked at that um, before. But the, the old discussions about R&D talk about the fact that it's not a complete measure of innovation, that, you know, the, the move has been to toward talking about innovation ecosystems. Yes, indeed, R&D matters, but the science and engineering workforce, um, capital investment, that we really need to think that when we 
measure innovation empirically, we really need to think not in terms of a, uh, a particular metric, but an in, a cluster, an innovation ecosystem. Uh, what, what just academically, well, what's your feelings on that? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you are absolutely correct. I, I consciously did not talk about the skill set in my presentation and its importance and <clears throat> variety of reasons. Uh, but uh, if you were to rank them, uh, Susan sort of alluded to this, they're among the highest uh, of impacts. And, but I did talk about connections amongst industry supply chains, right. how uh, movement to cloud computing is causing a lot of demand for semiconductors and uh, new fracking technologies leading to a resurgence of chemicals in the United States. So I do agree that um, these developments will occur along those lines of supply chain relationships. Okay, thank you. Finally, Susan, um, at the beginning of your presentation, you talked about the Chinese consumer. And, and obviously, we're going to have to think about the Chinese consumer because that's going to be an increasingly important demand pull force for global economic growth and global um, supply chain development. But the Chinese consumer has, has a, a few interesting um, challenges. For one thing, it's a rapidly aging population. More so than you would expect at China's sta stage of, um, of income development. Uh, second of all, they, while I, this is changing a little bit in the um, urban areas, in most of China, there's very weak social insurance. So, yeah, you still have, you know, the, the, um, the incentive to, toward high savings, toward non-investment. So, uh, while, while we need the Chinese consumer very much these days for global growth, it's, it's a challenged consumer population, is it not? Um, yes. Three yeses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'll say more. It is a challenged consumer population, but China is a little bit misunderstood. So traditionally, they have grown through investment spending fueled by high savings rates. And they have half-finished stadiums and empty high-rises and high-speed trains, you know, to nowhere. Uh, but this is actually changing. And in fact, last year, well, according to Chinese government statistics, uh, for the first time ever, consumption was over half of GDP and half of GDP growth. Now, part of the consumption was from government, but the majority was personal consumption. So this shift that we've been advising China to undertake now, at least economists have for a long time, uh, towards a more balanced economy between consumption versus investment is happening. Now, it's slower than we'd like, and the current slowdown um, is not good news for the world economy, but remember Apple sales, you know, saying, look, uh, they took a hit in their earnings call because of slow Chinese consumers. Automakers are having a terrible year in China, which is now the world's largest market for cars. So we're starting to feel the effect of, of any kind of, you know, business cycle downturn in China. Um, and they do have an aging uh, population. The one-child policy is now really starting to bite. Right. But nonetheless, there are a billion people and we're 300 million. So even at lower income levels and aging populations where you look at where's global consumption growth going to come from, probably going to be China. Thank you very much, Susan. We're about out of time. Studio audience, can we have a, a round of applause for our excellent speakers? 
podcast listeners, it has been great to bring you this special show. We will be exploring many of these complex topics in future podcasts. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.